in the reading corner today, I have William Grill with me. Now, William graduated with a BA honours from the University College Falmouth, and his debut book, Shackleton's Journey, was published by Flying Eye in 2014 and won the Kate Greenaway Medal. It also won the Association of Illustration Award for New Talent in Children's Book Illustration. The book is a great favourite with UK schools, and I know that many listeners will have used it in their classrooms. A second book with Flying Eye, The Wolves of Currampur, uh, was published in 2016. And today we're talking about the much anticipated third book, Bandula, The Great Elephant Rescue. It really is an inspirational story. So first of all, I'd like to welcome you into the reading corner, William. Thank you for having me. Bandula, in common with the first two books, is yeah. a historical narrative about the relationship between humans and the natural world. There's a lot for us to talk about, but I thought a good place to start would be the story. So when did you first hear it? And did you know straight away that you wanted to tell it? Well, I came across the book, um, Elephant Bill, as it was called, and then about about 10 years ago when I was at Falmouth, possibly because it's a Cornish author and it was in Cornwall <laughs> um, where I found the book. But I, I picked up mainly because of the name was quite unusual and the, the image on the cover. And then when I flipped through it, I saw some of the imagery, which was from Asian timber elephants logging in the jungle. And that kind of caught my eye and I thought that was kind of amazing and, and unusual. And then I kind of, I bookmarked it and I, I didn't really look at it again for a long time. And it sort of resurfaced again when I was thinking about a third book. And, and I remember I had it on my shelf somewhere and I kind of got it out and I tried to, you know, pitch it as an idea. And, and it was it's quite a dense book and quite a hard story to sort of tease out with this sort of memoir. Um, but eventually it kind of filtered through and I, I kind of thought, this would make a really nice trilogy to those other adventure non-fiction books and it would go in a slightly different direction but also still exploring a human and animal relationship in a, in a different part of the world that I'm used to like I kind of that's what sort of excites me I think mm. is that an old book that you it is it's, it's 1950s I think in this book you start uh, with writing about the context of Myanmar you write a bit about colonialism and independence. I think it might be worth explaining why that's important to set your story in that context. Yeah, well, it's really important to do that. It was a complicated part of history. Um, it's a part of history that a lot of us aren't too familiar with, even though we're really close to it in a way, that the British played a huge part in that country for not for a good reason. I'm, I'm not trying to tell the history of the British colonial rule, but I think it's mm. important to acknowledge it and people that read it can can learn something about that. Mm. I think it's really important because you could have chosen a different starting point. You could have just told this adventure story, if you like, but it was really interesting to see that you'd framed it uh, with that first of all. Well, we haven't even said what the story of Bandula is yet, so perhaps you could summarise that for us. Yeah, well... <laughs> Bandula was a, an amazing Asian timber elephant and he was different from a lot of elephants at the time because he was raised um, from a calf, which at the time was unusual. Most of them were captured, which is quite a harsh and brutal sort of process of, of taming and training. 
So he was raised through sort of patience and more of a compassionate method, which meant that he was more in sync with humans, more more intelligent in some ways. The amount of tools and words that he could recognise was far beyond many other elephants, sort of up to 100 different words and phrases and things like that. But he's also special because of what he went on to do during the war. So when, when the Second World War kind of came onto the scene in Myanmar, he was sort of enlisted as the first elephant in the army at the time, number one war elephant at the time. And uh, he was kind of like an unsung hero, I guess, of the Second World War. He was sort of a huge part of rescuing refugees into Myanmar, but also for building hundreds and hundreds of bridges which was sort of instrumental to the British getting out of Myanmar, but also ferrying in supplies and evacuating people. And I, I kind of wanted to shine a light on that because it's something I'd never heard about and didn't realise mm. elephants were involved that way. The story actually starts by looking at his life before this sort of rescue attempt as a timber elephant. And that's another aspect of the book that uh, comes across is almost like the rape of the land in terms of taking the forest and the the teak from um, the country and the elephant's role um, in that. Kind of a a few different themes going on there. But yeah, it was important to sort of lay the groundwork first and set the scene and the context of colonial Burma or Myanmar. And then also look at um, Bandula's background, which was... A different one. He was trained by his Burmese trainer called Potok, who trained him up from a calf and kind of believed that his destiny was bound to the elephant and that his whole future and fortune were connected with him. And so he became a really special elephant because of the patience and the kindness that he was showing. And funnily enough, he was born in the same year as Williams, the person who recorded the account of the story. So it's quite an uncanny sort of situation <laughs> started with. Um, we should say something about Williams because he's hmm. the other sort of character um, yeah. in this story, isn't he? Yeah, he's an interesting guy. So he was from Cornwall and he was always sort of interested in animals as a kid. And he was quite a reclusive sort of child, spent a lot of time outdoors, ended up going um, to mining school. And then he went into um, the army in the First World War and was involved in the Camel Corps in the Middle East and North Africa. That had quite an impact on him and he wanted to do something different and kind of have an escape from all that. So he ended up going to Myanmar to work with timber elephants. And he spent about 25 years there as a forestry assistant, sort of overseeing the operation and the health and safety and all of that for the timber timber extraction, which was teak. And then when the Second World War came, his life was sort of turned upside down again and he was sort of brought back to square one in a way. And um, rather than flee back to the UK, he thought he could help by uh, sort of harnessing the power of the elephants that he'd been working with in another way, um, in helping the Allies. But I think he was quite a sensitive guy for the time he was alive. So I think if you if you read his original account, you realise at the end of the book, he really wants something better for the animals that he worked with and he sort of dreams for a more peaceful future for them. Just while we're talking about him, there's a quote in the book uh, from him. He says, I found my happiness not in considering myself a homo sapien set apart from the rest of creation, but in seeing that I fit in with the rest of nature. 
what are called so wrongly the animal and vegetable kingdoms. I believe that plants and animals have an immediate sensitiveness and awareness of loving of what is good and what is perilous that we humans cut ourselves off from to our own detriment. This is what the jungle has taught me. Had to have that in there. He obviously spent so much of his life surrounded by the environment and and animals and and humans that are so integrated that he realises that it's a mistake to think of ourselves as, yeah, superior in any way. And that's something that we still do, isn't it, today? Mm. I think for me, that's why it was a story worth telling. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, making the book then. For The Wolves of Currampore, which is set in New Mexico, I think that you visited and immersed yourself in the landscape. Was that the same here? Did you actually visit Myanmar? I did, yeah. I ended up staying at a um, place where I could uh, draw the landscape around me and then I moved to another location where I could go to an elephant camp, like a modern-day logging camp, which they still practice throughout Myanmar. And I could go there and watch Uzis work with their uh, elephants and um, learn from them and just see how like a real working day is, um, which was pretty pretty amazing. I, I don't expect I'll ever get to do anything like that ever again. I know that you said in previous interviews that sketchbooks are really important to you. I'm pretty sure that you took your sketchbook with you. What kinds of things did you draw? I mean, did you sketch things that didn't make it into the book? Oh, plenty. Yeah, plenty of things didn't make it in there, which I drew. I think with drawing, you have to expect that you're going to draw uh, for every 10 pages, one page might become something useful <laughs> to you. And the other stuff is just practice. Uh, elephants are really tricky to draw. So they're very awkward animals. Their heads are like very complex things um so easy to get wrong so i did tons tons of line drawings just to get their general shape down and seeing as they're moving quite quickly at times i had to be quite fast with those mm-hmm. um, but then also some location drawings the kind of scenes that they would work in the way that the uzi and the elephant would sort of sit together or, or stand do you at, at the same time take photographs or are you somebody who prefers to leave the camera and the phone at home I'm quite lazy and I, I took a few photos on my phone, which looked rubbish. So I learned a lesson there to actually buy a camera next time because photos are useful for reference because you, you just can't absorb everything, especially when you're only there for a few days in a camp. But, but I think what I find with drawing is that when you're in a, in a new place, you're drawing, you, you take in a lot more than through a photo in, in a way. Your, your memory is a, is a large part of it. When you're sat down, you're drawing a, a scene, you know, um, sat by a river watching some elephants move logs around, you, you take in other things like the smells, uh, the sound of the water, maybe the sunlight beaming down on you. You know, all, all these things sort of do influence your drawing and your memory and the work that you do after that. I think that's really interesting because you're relying on your own impression rather than the impression. The camera is depersonalised yeah. in a way that... You are not. So it's your impression that you're taking in through the drawing. That's exactly it. So you might find that what you drew rather than what your photograph captured was maybe the snake-like branches creeping over you. You really focused on that. And then that becomes an aspect of one of your drawings. But perhaps a photograph wouldn't have got that emphasis across because it's so literal. A drawing is far more personal and, and it really captures what you see more and what you felt more than, than a photo for me. 
Now, your finished artwork in all three books does have that appearance and feel of sketch. Can you tell us about how you achieve that spontaneous feel? Yeah, I, I think for me, it just comes down to drawing something again and again and again. Uh, really, sometimes quite quickly, sometimes giving myself like a time limit even to make myself do it quickly. And then I'll just select the one which looks the most fresh and kind of lively. Because there's a danger if you sit down and you just draw something for an hour or two, the lines can become slower and static and stiff and more lifeless. I once saw Quentin Blake mm. talking about his finished artwork, which, you know, he's got a very open line that looks as though it's been drawn in haste. Yes. But no, he's drawn it many times. I've heard that he'll draw the same character sort of 50 times and then he'll choose the one that he likes the most, you know? Mm. So that's very much a technique I kind of use as I'll, if I'm drawing a, an elephant or a little scene, I'll, I'll, I'll sketch out many, many times. Another way is to, is to have a line drawing of your scene or your character and then put another piece of paper on top and use a light box and just keep practising that same figure and you have that. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of little tricks and things like that you can use to mm. spice up your sort of energy in your drawings. Another thing that connects all three books is a limited colour palette and it's unique to each book. It's sympathetic, obviously, to the subject and the location. And I think in Bandula, I thought we have predominantly about six colours, obviously the green and the yellow. There's some dusky pink. You arrived quickly at that choice or was there some playing around to get the colours and the balance of colours right? I kind of arrived quickly at the decision it was going to be predominantly a green book. That was easy. But then, like I said, there's there's a lot of tweaking within that. So I... I did this bit differently this time where I built it up in layers. So I have a blue layer, a yellow layer and a red layer and then a black one as well, which comes in last. But the blue and the yellow overlap to give me green. So the book is made up predominantly that way. And then the red is kind of for accents and things like that. And the black is for like more detail and darker, darker areas. So for me, it was, it was kind of because of the environment, but also because of the, the Myanmar flag is, is red, kind of golden, yellow and green. So that kind of just works in, intrinsically because of their national colours. I like having limitations. I think that it makes your life easier mm-hmm. and it often makes the, the final outcome better in a sense because you've, you've had to make less decisions and things look more kind of harmonious, I guess. Mm. it's interesting isn't it how many moods you can create with such limited colors you might notice at times in the book where there's um spreads which are mainly just red and green and that's kind of moments where i really want time to slow down a bit and sometimes they're more emotional sort of spreads the ones of sunset and where something quite i don't know heartfelt or whimsical is being uh, communicated and i kind of use color that way as well sometimes as a device Mm. just to change your kind of perception of things Mm. a bit like in a film where a filter might come across and you're seeing a flashback or a intensity of a scene so color can be used in that way too which is Mm. always helpful and then form is sort of given to things like trees through heavy and light pressure of those Mm. colors and then there's sort of lightness and it gives that seems to be what gives things their form yeah, I guess some 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 parts of the book can be quite impressionistic in the way that I've drawn some of those scenes. Yeah, like the bamboo forest is quite like that. It's a lot of just pencil strokes, really. 
but I think that's also because I like some some scenes to look more kind of poetic or lyrical in their appearance mm. and not too literal and static or cold if you know what I mean mm. so even though we're dealing with non-fiction I think there's a lot you can do in, in other ways artistically you know absolutely one of the things that we've come to recognize I think in your books is a balance between breathtaking double page spreads and a montage of smaller images which also um, goes along with a balance between narrative in this book and pages which are sort of background information lots of information what I don't know about elephants now you know I know everything about elephants yeah yeah I wonder whether we could choose a couple of spreads and you could talk yeah. to us a little bit about them let's talk a little bit about say something in the introduction here Yep. You're giving us quite a lot of information. I've got lots of small, almost icon-sized images. Yeah. So here it's just breaking the information down into little bite-sized chunks, really. And I, I kind of want to share everything with the reader that I have read and learned. So I want to show you the different uh, environments or the biomes that exist in this country because it's quite amazing that there's six main different types. I'm kind of just trying to boil the information down to the most basic form, really, and uh, mm. make it as easy to read as possible also giving you a bit more information you get just from the the text and if i if i draw it it means i don't have to write as much text as well you know mm-hmm. hopefully people c- come out of this book having learned something that it's it's quite a complex balance as you as well yeah. in the country yeah. i'd like to know i mean here we've got on this page it's uh bandula and elephant bill i could pick any page with an elephant yeah. on it actually because yeah. what i want to talk to you about is what you wanted to show, it seems to me you've tried to capture essence of elephant rather than something yeah. that's anatomically correct, yeah. as it were. I think that's partly stylistically. My The way that I draw, I'm not a draftsman who can just who can repl- replicate real life. And I think even if I could, I, I don't know if I would want to. So I, I guess when I draw things, I try and boil them down into simple shapes and form. But yeah, I, I hope I give enough just enough of a hint of expression and character in them that they look vaguely warm and inviting. I mean, you you just get the solidity of this elephant and this big forehead, you know, that kind of looms and these huge tree trunk-like legs that are... Yeah, and he's just a calf there, but they're big and they can knock you over if you're not careful. Wow. Um, Yeah. And then we've got something completely different here. This is... A double page spread, very little text on it. Yeah. And you've devoted the whole page to landscape. Yeah. So the, as you mentioned in, in the books that I made, there can be quite a lot of information on one spread and, and then some more text on another. And I think I have to have this this breathing room um, where the image gets to do the talking. And and really adding extra words to this wouldn't really help a lot. I hope hopefully when you you know, you look at it, you get lost in the, the forms and shapes of the trees and the mystery of what lies beyond those trees, I think, and, and what's ahead of us, really. Also, it's important that it spreads right out and envelops the whole page and almost the, the lack of words makes it quieter, I think, as well. Mm. That's exactly the feeling that I got, that I, this was an invitation to me, mm. this page, to almost come with you into this landscape uh, because oh, the way it's... <laughs> The way it's framed with the two trees on either side and then that light channel going through the middle there. I'm just going to come down to, I mean, there's so much. Every page, honestly, to anybody that's listening, we could stop on any and every page. Mm. Uh, But 
I wanted to come on to this one here, Bandula to the yes. Rescue. Again, another big double page spread, a little bit more information on it this time. And I was kind of comparing this to Shackleton's journey with your double page spread of the ice sheet. Yeah. And what you're showing there and how you've done that. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, this is water created with two colours here. Yeah. So this is a, a crossing of a river when um, Williams became sick at well, quite a few points in his time in Myanmar. And he was basically loaded onto the back of Bandula's back and they ferried him to rescue. But part of that rescue was was days and days on the elephant's back and crossing rivers and things like that. It was pretty, pretty amazing. And um, I just wanted to show that sort of precariousness of him perched on the uh, back of an elephant as he swims across a river. Wonderful. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine being rescued by an animal that way. But, um, yeah, amazing. And then maps. So we have a map here locating the journey that the elephants yes. take. Yep, this is from uh, the border of Myanmar into India. And it ends up, they, they pick a little corridor through the hills, but they still end up crossing quite a few mountains and hills on their way there. It must have used a map reference. Yeah, so there's a map reference in his original account, but then there's also uh, Google Earth and Google Maps. You can get some pretty decent reference of the area that I was drawing there. So it was a kind of combination of looking at a bunch of different maps and sort Mm -hmm. of boiling it down to my own one, Mm -hmm. which captured a sense of those hills there and the the undulating sort of topography of the landscape there. Mm, Wonderful. And the density of the forest as well. It's all very foresty. Yeah. I just wanted to perhaps go to the next two spreads and deal with those two together. Mm. So there's a spread called Into the Unknown, and it shows the elephants on their um, journey. We're slightly higher up looking down, almost as though we're on the hill looking down at the elephants. And in the next spread, we could be either at the top of a mountain Mm. or even in an aeroplane. It's called a sea of jungle. And those two together felt very filmic to me. If you take one followed by the next one. I'm glad you had that feeling. That's kind of what I'm kind of going for. I I think I I watch a lot of film. A lot of the directors I like work on a huge scale, like Stanley Kubrick or um, Terence Malick. A lot of these shots sometimes can operate like like a God's eye. So all seeing kind of observer so someone who can just see everything and that have that that grand view of what's going on and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get across there Mm -hmm. and just so you can see the scale of it so you can see the um distances that they were crossing and the 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 environment they were kind of wading into and the the precariousness of their situation I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. I wish I had time to talk to you more about it, but I would like to ask you one final question, and that's um, looking back now at Shackleton's journey um, through these three books that you've done. Are there things that you've tried to do differently to how you would have done them those years ago, 2014, and what are they? So, yeah, when I first started Shackleton's journey, that book was just done with a couple of colouring pencils and so was The Walls of Karampur. Uh, this book is still pencil, but it was all drawn in black and white layers. And those layers were scanned and layered in Photoshop and they were assigned different colours in different folders. 
which almost acted as a sort of digital lithograph or screen print. So I'm kind of trying to mimic an effect that I really like in more kind of early children's books of the 19s of 60s, 70s, 80s, where they're using colour separations because of the, the print process they're using. So that can be a real benefit sometimes, but then it can also be really difficult to line these layers up sometimes. I try to move things on a little bit in terms of my process, just to give myself something you know, new to do. I, I started doing some lithography before lockdown, and it's got sort of a dream of mine to make a book through litho or even through etching or, or another print process. So, yeah, maybe it's a slow transition into print. Who knows? Amazing. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's been a great learning process for me, at least, to, to, to think more in layers and colour separations. So. Yeah. You sort of hinted that there might be a fourth book there. Yeah, so I'm I'm working on one at the moment actually with an author, another non-fiction book. This time it's not it's not an adventure, so that's exciting. That's fun to work on. And then I have plans for my own book, which I write and illustrate after this one, and that one will be another kind of big story. Interesting. Thank yeah. you so much for uh, your time today. It's been brilliant. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been great to chat to you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.